what made you look to take on an American VC at such an early stage in the um, in the in the company's life? Uh, reality. So yeah. we tried to raise money in Israel for six to nine months. I think we met with everyone that has a bank account, more or less. At the time, got no from all of them. I think by the time we tried that in the US, we were very, a lot better at it than six <laughs> months. Welcome to the latest episode of Tech Salescraft with me, James Hounslow. And today I'm delighted because we've got Roy Solomon on the show. Uh, Roy, welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me, James. No problem. Um, Roy, I was super excited to get you on the show because we've been running a series where we've been talking to a number of VCs, entrepreneurs and sales leaders from across uh, the US, UK and in Israel. And I was really keen to have you on the show for a number of reasons. You're a founder that's been there, done it and had an exit. You've been advising and investing in some some really cool companies. And obviously you're in a new venture right now. And I think there's, as an audience that we have, I think there's there's a lot of key learns that people can uh, can take away. And I hope we can just find a couple of those bits in the uh, in the conversation today. As a way of getting started, uh, Roy, it would be great if you could just give a our audience just a little bit of information about your backgrounds to who you are. Sure. So I've been in startups, I think most of my career. Uh, started in Israel, focusing on more internet, consumer-oriented companies back in the day. In the day. There weren't many of those uh, in Israel or in general. Background kind of in software engineering, QA, product. Then in 08, uh, started a company called Applause in the QA DevOps space. And basically, we created uh, kind of the concept of uh, crowd testing, building a virtual community of testers and give them tools to test uh, and validate uh, different pieces of software around the world. So companies like uh, Google and Microsoft and Booking and others were able to test their software all over the world in a matter of seconds and minutes rather than weeks and months. And kind of grew with the company for about 10 years and did many things and kind of constantly moved from the technical side into the more go-to-market side. Then in 18, 19, we sold the company to a private equity firm called Vista. And I left shortly after and uh, rested a bit and tried to help other uh, early stage teams kind of finding their mojo between early product market fit and early go to market and how those two uh, comes together. Uh, I invested in a few companies as part of that consultancy and in 21, uh, kind of end of 21, figured that COVID changed many things, including selling and the way sellers and buyers interact. So I decided to focus on that. And with my co-founder, Daria, I built SalesRoom. And since then, kind of focusing on sales communication. So how AEs and CMS communicate with their prospects and buyers and how to make it more efficient and how to use AI in real time to impact the conversation. Yeah, that's mostly it. 
Awesome. Uh, so it's been a great career to get. I would really like to sort of like focus in on applause to start with. Were you a co-founder or were you a, a single founder on your own? No, I was a co-founder. So I, at the time, I did not have any B2B or enterprise experience at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I built this process and, and product for myself as an individual or, or a QA manager. And I knew that it can work kind of at scale for other companies as well. And I figured, let's give it a try. And along that early journey, I met my co-founder at the time. And together, we we kind of took it to market and built a prototype and raised money. And that's what also brought, kind of moved me from Israel to Boston. Our first investor at the time was East Coast-based, and they kind of asked us, hey, you need to be there. Yeah. That's, that's a bit I would like to, to dive into there then. So you had an idea. What made you decide that you wanted to go down the route of being an entrepreneur and a, and a founder at that time? Yeah, so I, I think at that point, so I did some computer-related stuff, software-related stuff uh, in, the, in the IDF. And shortly after I completed my service, I joined an internet, mail client type of a company called IncrediMail and kind of working with the founders there and seeing how decisions are being made and how speed matters and how to go to market and test certain things and kind of started to fall in love with the dynamics of of a startup and then moved to another startup for about a year, year and a half kind of in gaming. Mm -hmm. And find it okay, but not for me. Uh, although I did some gaming development uh, before as well. And then ended up at a cyber company, actually. And we closed that company after a year. And at that point, I figured if all those idiots started the companies before me, idiots in, uh, in quotes, uh, yeah. that, I, that I worked with and I admired and I see kind of their courage and uh, drive, if they can do it, then why shouldn't uh, I should not try to do it as well? And kind of felt like the the idea and the, the concept that I had that we had in mind at the time is compelling enough to a lot more companies. So actually, we went after startups at the beginning, like like a typical early stage companies. And through the feedback from other early stage teams, you kind of start building your confidence and saying, "Hey, you are not dreaming." Uh, in a bubble, there's actually value here and they're willing to give you a try. So that that helped as well. Nice. So you get the company going, you go to look at, at investments, which uh, a lot of tech companies obviously do. What made you look to take on an American VC at such an early stage in the um, in the in the company's life? A reality. So yeah. we tried to raise money in Israel for six to nine months. I think we met with everyone that has a bank account, more or less. <laughs> and at the time, got no from all of them. I think throughout this process, we got a lot better at it as well. So because after a no, you debrief, you figure out, okay, what went wrong? What can we improve in the story, in the feedback that we're getting from customers? I think by the time we tried that in the US, we were very, a lot better at it than six mm-hmm. months ago. And in the US, it was a lot 
faster, easier, it's never easy, but it was a lot easier. Also, I think at the time, the US was a better market for us from an investment standpoint. There was more openness to invest in something that is not, that doesn't fit into a very specific category. Now DevOps is a category that is well known and there's a lot of money in it, but in 08, either you sold to developers or you sold to IT. There wasn't this brainchild between those two categories. To be honest, I was in other journeys as well because I helped some of the teams that I was involved with to raise money as well. And for sales room, I was never successful raising money in Israel for some reason. The US market worked better for me. Yeah, worked out really well um, in the end for you. So how did you, did did both you and your co-founder both head to the US or how did, if you didn't, if you were the only one, how did you decide? Was it, did you draw the short straw or? No, both of us did. He actually lived in Boston before me, decided to go back to Israel. This is when we met, then decided to go back. So both of us went back. Okay. And is that, is that why Boston is the location? Yeah, it's again more accident than anything else. <laughs> over the years, as I got used to the weather, I also fall in love with it as well and kind of with the community there. It's not as robust as the communities in the valley or in New York, mm-hmm. but I actually like that. I like that it's a bit more quiet, a bit more, it has character that is more than just tech. I'm a big believer in diversity as much as I can. That's why we decided to stay here for. Wow. It's a great place. Uh, so I, I totally understand why you uh, why you would decide that. I like to to ask a lot of my guests who move to North America because it is you know particularly anything to do with software sales. North America is the is the largest kind of market that you can that you can sell to, and um, and particularly if your if your organization isn't American. To basically achieve probably what you set out to achieve, you'll probably need to have some sort of a footprint in North America. When you landed and those first few months in, in North America, from a cultural standpoint, what did it feel like to you? It felt different for sure. I think I was used to kind of a very dynamic, very chaotic almost type of communication style. And in, still till today, I think I operate a lot better when there is chaos rather than when there is a very structured and disciplined type of uh, process. But I had to adapt over the years as the company grew. But I learned the importance of doing things at scale. I think it's a lot of it is kind of Israel is a very small place. And the tech community is very, it grew over the years, of course, but it's still rather small. And it's very easy to get to certain people and and ideate and kind of collaborate. The U.S. obviously is a completely different scale. It's kind of almost global by definition. Between East Coast and West Coast, there are differences and mid-states, there are differences. So you have to think in kind of more granularity, more multidimensional. So I, I had to adapt quickly into that type of environment. I learned that good products without sales, for example, are just good products in a vacuum. So how you communicate to uh, marketing teams, how you communicate to the sales force to make sure they understand the why and uh, the persona and why it matters to them and which pain point it actually solves. 
So that's a really important part there to, to sort of think about, because I think particularly in first time founders, when they're building their their, their product and, and the relationship and, and how I quite often say that the sales team or the go to market team enables the founders dream and ambition of, of where it's going. At what point did you recognize the importance where you said there that a good product is just a good product without, you know, the good sales team? I think we got lucky a bit by one of the first hires we made. And it's not something that at the time was common. Still, I think still investors would advise most founders, hey, don't hire someone in sales until you sell your first 10 deals yourself. I think you should take that advice within reason. For us, what worked, well actually was hiring someone that's experienced in sales very early on way before product market fit because it really it forces us to do the right things early on and it increased the feedback loop significantly so instead of me talking with 10 customers a month if i'm lucky or a quarter and another co-founder do another five or so uh, bringing a professional seller with a drive that all day long reach out to people can really accelerate the feedback loop as long as you're willing to listen. Obviously, if you don't listen, then it doesn't matter. So for us, that worked really, really well. And I think for products that are more complex to explain, that maybe create some sort of a category in a way that may be deep in tech and require significant implementation, I actually think hiring sales early on, if if you have the money, is probably the best thing you can do before marketing, before product, before thinking in scale, getting more people to go to market with and strategically spread the wealth of knowledge and the concept that you bring to the market can benefit early stage teams significantly. That's really interesting. Was this your first sales hire that you've had ever made, along with being the first sales hire for this organization? What would you say would have been your key learns from from that experience? If you can remember back back then, it sounds like it was a pretty successful hire. But if you were to talk through anybody else, this is a really critical part for many organizations is getting that first hire in and getting it right back in. Any sales hire right has its challenges. What would you say you learned from that overall experience that you could share with people? I think what worked for us was hiring someone with immense drive, work, ethics, really someone that is willing to bounce on every wall that is willing to speak with him and start a conversation. It doesn't have to be the the smartest guy in the room, the most experienced guy in the room but someone that is willing to really carve his or her path without mm-hmm. a playbook, without guidance, obviously with some guidance around the product and, and the market. I think in this in this example, it was his first time selling in DevOps. He had other IT data-related experience, but first, thing, first time in QA. But still, there are fundamentals in sales that are always true, regardless of what you're selling. The immense ability to go after the right personas, people with the right title, and send them a note and go visit them and call them constantly. Uh, Getting a lot of no's along the way, it doesn't really matter. It's enough that you get one yes a day or a week to make enough progress. Uh, I think that 
mentality stayed with us for a long, long time and kind of was a big part of our DNA eventually. And more than just the product, more than just the tech, more kind of our ability to interact with the market in a personal level was the key to our success. I like it. So I just want to to, to home in on a, on a bit there. So you talked a lot there when hiring this salesperson about character rather than experience. Yeah. I speak to a lot of founders, as you can imagine, and, and I know you have a, a network of them too. When they look at their first sales hire, they want them to come from the sector that they're in and have a black book of contacts because they say that's going to be a quick win. So a lot of times that comes from the VC giving the, the advice in there. What would you say to those founders now as to why you didn't do that and why, as a lot of very successful leaders do, talk about character over experience? I think Rolex can help, but you kind of uh, exhaust it very quickly. Hmm. Uh, and then what? And, and maybe it's okay for some. I know, for example, in cyber, a lot of the first deals come from within network because the CSO community is also mm-hmm. rather small and well, well connected. So that's fine. But as you think beyond the first 10 customers, I think having a process, having a driven individual that is willing to go after whatever markets make sense at the time, is a lot more important than someone that knows 10 people that might be good potential early adapter for you. Also, you don't really know, if if we're honest, you don't really know who's going to be the best customer for you. Like for us at Applause, a year or two into the company, if you would ask me before if those are going to be your customers at, at that early stage, I would tell you, no way. Like, like Hasbro. Like a game company, like a traditional game company, kind of Bloomberg, mm-hmm. uh, gambling companies. It's hard to plan for it. It's hard to hire for those categories when you when you do planning. Uh, also, I can tell you for Salesroom, for example, we have customers in Germany that if you would ask me if that's going to be a strategic market for you, I would tell you no way. But you don't really know. So what you can do best is just hire the person that is willing to speak with everyone and be open about it and be sensitive enough to listen to their pain point and figure out if there is commonality here. And after a few years, when you are a bit more established and have more cust- kind of a bigger customer base and more success stories, you can go back and say, okay, let's, let's look at the macro level and figure out which teams we want to have to focus on which categories. But at the beginning, again, you don't have it. I'd rather hire for character rather than make the mistake of going after a specific category that may not adapt me at all. And then I need to let go of that person, hire another person. That that cycle costs a lot of time. It does. It does. So in your career, you started out on the technical side and you you've kind of moved forward to obviously being a founder, growing a company, but you do a lot of advising around go to market now and being on that that sales side. How have you found life on the other side from technology on the, on the sales side? It's interesting. I, I, I always like to say that the world would be better if we can run go to market teams the way we run engineering teams in a way. So more more accountability, you can measure more, more things. And for sure, sales and marketing as, as categories improved a lot in that regards. There are a lot more analytics. There are all categories around 
how to measure certain things and telling you where to invest and how to forecast and so on. But as I said, I, I, I think at the end of the day, the combination of both typically is what brings success. You can't be an amazing product with no smartness or ideas or planning around go to market often enough. And vice versa, you can invest a lot in go to market and a brand and storytelling and so on. But at some point, if the product doesn't uh, live up to the story, it's not going to matter as well. And perhaps we're starting to see that now in 23, where there was a lot of money before, a lot of stories to be told. But now uh, where budgets are more under scrutiny, let's say, it's kind of the stronger products are those that are going to survive in a way. So finding that balance between those two is what I found interested. I was never the best engineer in the room. I was never the best sales manager in the room. But something between those two is where I think I can add a few, few value points. Like it. You just seen from the experience that you've had both running a business and uh, from your time where you've been doing some advisory and investing that globally there's a 40% churn rate of salespeople within the first year, particularly within companies from uh, kind of seed, depending on how much money they have at seed and kind of series C funding, which is it's huge. And, you know, we don't need to split the detail on the effects that has in an organization but what have you learned over your time to try and perfect and, and no one's got a silver bullet for it but to perfect a process of identifying a candidate that stands the best chance of being successful in your organization first of all i can't say i was more successful than the market statistics unfortunately uh, maybe for certain times we were better at it but as you grow the team from 10 to 250, statistics uh, catch up with you. Maybe I'll explain it in kind of the mistakes that I think we I've made in the past is probably not invested enough in coaching and training for mid-level managers. So the guys that are going to manage the teams and have a strong alignment into what success looks like for that particular team and create a connecting tissue between the teams. So what we had is pockets of excellence of few teams that were highly successful, but we didn't, I think I didn't do a good enough job translating that success to other teams as well. So it was very much driven by the individual, so more luck than anything else. In hindsight, I would invest, law, invest a lot more in making sure mid-level managers are best in class and represent the brand that we want to be and represent the sales cycle that we want to have and let them make the, the hiring decision at that point. I think supporting the sales team across the board from the entire organization is super important and, and speaks about a lot about the DNA of the company. So... I never liked the tension between sales and marketing where marketing uh, marketing feels like their job is to just create uh, assets for the sales. But at that point, it's, it's the sales job to make the close. For example, how you incentivize marketing leaders is super important. If they don't have a significant component of their compensation aligned with sales, so aligned with revenue goals, instantly you're creating a misalignment there. Same with product, same with engineering. So in many ways, I'm, I'm a big believer that everyone is in sales one way or another. 
obviously within reason, you also need to develop things for the future. So hiring people that can thrive in that environment was very important. If you are one of those person that needs a playbook and then go into his, his or her corner, execute against that playbook again and again and again until you, you find success, which can work at certain companies, we learned that you are not going to be successful with us. For example, we, we've made the mistake at Applause trying to hire people from HP, which at the time was the QA leader in, in many ways. There were pockets of success or so individuals that had a lot of market knowledge and got what we did instantly and was super successful with us. But managers from those companies, for example, I don't think we were never successful make them work for us. Interesting. There's something that I really like about what I said. So I said to you, the, the question that I said to you was in trying to learn from the, the hiring process to identify the right people to be successful, you swung around the other way and a lot of really great sales leaders and and, and founders that I've spoken to always say that we probably got it right more often than we got it wrong, but our onboarding and how we handled things after somebody arrived was where things fell down. And right. you spoke about all of that out the other side, which I which I find fascinating and puts you obviously in, in the reasons why you've been so successful is looking at the other side of it. But if there is one or two bits that you can identify from your interview process that you add in, whether it be a scorecard, a challenge, if there's anything there that you've picked up from people you've spoken to, the interviews have done, that helps you to understand if you're identifying if someone's right, what would that be? I like to understand what drives them. So and again, nothing here is going to be news, but asking kind of what they're passionate about and go to that rabbit hole and talk about why why and what does it mean and what made them make the decisions getting there the ability to communicate i think what was important for me was i'm kind of what you see is what you get type of a person for the good and the bad and i learned along the way that uh, for some people it's very hard to communicate this way so i knew to begin with that uh, even if they are an amazing, I'm not going to be successful with them or set them up for success. But I also expect that from the team as well. So if you have a need, if you have a gap, if you see something that is wrong, if you think I'm an idiot, no yeah. problem. Let's let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. And I think that's now you can describe it as kind of startup mentality. But I think it's true regardless, even if you work at Google, that's the mentality you should have if you want to make an impact within reason. Obviously, they're always politics involved. So I was looking for someone I can communicate with generally, uh, directly, quickly. I think speed of execution is often more important than the best idea in the world. So I was looking for examples in which the person made significant decision in their life. For example, immigrants. Immigrants doesn't have to be from Israel to the US or from the UK to Portugal. You were born and raised in Michigan and you decided to move to Boston. Why? Why? What was the reason there? What was the story? Or you moved to California to find a job in tech before that you were in, in printing. What was the reasoning? So kind of hooking up to those examples, 
Second, I try to figure out if they're curious about technology. At the end of the day, we're selling to technical people and technical people can recognize immediately if you are selling something that you feel you really feel passionate about or you're just selling something. So I was looking for that curiosity, which apps are you using? Why are you using them? Did you, did you look at the alternatives? Again, they don't need to be top contributes to GitHub or kind of play with code as a, as a hobby, but they need to love technology to be part for kind of in a technology company. We spoke on this off air, but um, just coming back to it, you came across uh, from from Israel at a time where most Israeli tech companies who needed to go to the US sent a a senior leader over. Even to do with the business that you're with now kind of helps the fact that that's not necessary now. You don't have to go from Israel to the, the US and that has it pros and its its cons but you you mentioned something early on in this conversation that the people from the west are different to the people central and are different to people on the on the east coast of the usa how much were you able to find that out by living in north america and what advice would you give to those young founders setting up and and staying in israel and staying in tel aviv about how they get their head round what's going on the difference particularly when hiring across the us but not just hiring but selling across the us and actually realizing that you have to do it differently everywhere yeah i think what we see in israel in the last century or so is a lot of smart experienced people that made the move from israel to the us made the round robin kind of went back mm-hmm. and bought a slew of experience network with them so i think it's a lot easier now to build a high growth type of company out of Israel, even if your markets are kind of the US or Europe. But at the end of the day, there is no, there's, there's really no replacement of spending time here. So even if you live in Israel, I'm sure most of those guys are spending a few of their weeks every quarter in their target markets, talking with their ICP, spending time with their teams, learning what nuances in communication and, and, and marketing tactics and sales tactics needed in order to be successful in those target markets. There are a lot more experience and kind of playbooks already in that. So I think in general, the market got a lot more mature into how to personalize a go-to-market motion in a specific market. A lot more mentors in that regards in Israel. So I, I don't think in 08, I think it was a bit different and there was a lot less knowledge of how to do it right. So you have to be here. But nowadays, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. It's true. It's true. I'd say there's a, there's, there's a lot of business doing um, super well. It just throws up different challenges, doesn't it? I've really enjoyed this conversation so far. There's a few more bits I uh, I want to dive into, but we're just at that point where you get a little bit of a breather from having questions fired at you and you get to ask, uh, me a question that you've uh, always wanted to ask a recruiter and I'll do my best to answer it. Sure. So you are somewhat focused on kind of go-to-market and, and early sales hires in, in startup. When you do this matchmaking, if you will, what are you looking for in that candidate to make sure they're ready for the early stage journey? So regardless of whether it's early stage or 
or, or, or a slightly more established business. It's really important for us to super understand the business that they're going to be joining. You understand the makeup of it, how how it's got to where it is, the founders, what their involvement is, what they're looking to achieve. Most salespeople will join a leader over a product. A great salesperson can sell an average product. An average salesperson can't always get a good product off the shelf. So really understanding the, the DNA of the business and the why. Once you've got that, you can understand what type of person is going to fit that. And then it's about conversations with the candidates to see what they're looking for. And you, and, and you marry it up in that way. So a lot of people think they want to be part of a startup and the journey. The reality is that there's not many people capable in that first early, early stage with it. Sometimes a lot of it for us is actually about educating founders about what they actually need at that point early on. And it pretty much is like what you described, that first sales hire that you that you brought in at, um, at applause. So, so yeah, in, in answer to your question, it's really, really understanding the business and the leader and then transferring that across to the people we're speaking to and making sure it matches up with what they are looking for and what they want from an organization and what they've done. That way, you know that there is a at least a, a starting point of a synergy. Got it. And, and did you find that candidates or talent that worked previously at startups is have higher likelihood to be successful at the next startups or not necessarily? So a lot. Of, so so again, like business say, look, I, I really want someone who's experienced in a in a startup. I think there's so much out there now that you know somebody who has had the experience of how rough it can be at a startup. You know, there's all very well, well saying, look, we've got this great product. We're going on this journey. But on the first day, you're going to have to order your own laptop. You know, we don't have hoodies and and, and whatnot and all the fluffy stuff and the playbook. We're going to try and put together our, our ourselves as we go. And a lot of people say, yeah, look, that's fine until you're in it and you actually realize how much you depended on the playbook before and 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 that it's not really, it's not really you. So look, uh, it all comes down to also someone that's been at a, a startup before. What was that startup like? What were they selling? Was it more a plug and play or was it more complex? So there's there's so many bits that go around it. What I always say to, to leaders is understand why you're hiring this person. What do you need that person to do over the next 12 months? And what are you going to give them to do it? And what skill set and what character do they need to be able to achieve the next 12 months because sometimes people will look at it and go this person you know they might go on to be our our sales leader i'm like put the brakes on we're not hiring a sales leader we're hiring a good salesperson if they do turn out to in time want to become a sales leader and be a great sales leader that's awesome but we're not testing for that right now because if you tick some of those boxes what they might do is not tick some of the sales and you've hired the wrong person so so it's it's just don't look out at what everybody else is doing. Just look internally, look at the next 12 months. What do they need to achieve and what skill set do they need to be able to achieve those? And what are the characteristics that they need to have to be successful in your business? Then we go and, and match those up. And to be honest, where they come from shouldn't matter if they tick all those boxes. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. Before I let you go, got to hear about sales room. What are you guys up to? Why did you decide to um, to do it? Sure. So 
as I mentioned earlier, I, I think we felt like uh, Zoom or, or Google Meet or Teams were never built for such a complex use case like seller buyers interaction. So we're talking about six to nine months long conversations, a lot of stakeholders involved in the process, a lot of information, and more than, more than anything, a lot of trust and rapport that needs to be built between all those stakeholders. And there is a lot more than just video, audio, and screen share that, that comes into that play. So we decided to build exactly that, to build a meeting platform for sellers that is powered by AI and experience. So it's almost like the, the equivalent of going into, the, into a car without a navigation in this DNA. And I felt like that's what we're expecting our sellers to do nowadays. Yes, we can help them with some maps and some information that is generic, but in the meeting itself, where it matters the most, when they build the trust, they're on their own, nothing have your back on, on Zoom. Maybe the manager can join and help, but the manager can't be in every meeting. Uh, so we're building exactly that. We kind of, uh, it's a meeting platform, beautifully designed, high quality, can look and feel like your brand or the story that you want to uh, tell as, a, uh, as an AE. But behind the scene, we understand what's going on. And in real time, alerting you if you are on track, if you are following best practices in communication, if you're following the meeting plan that you have in mind, are you asking enough of the questions? Are you going deep enough in the conversation? And vice versa, how engaged your buyer is during that meeting. And if they are not engaged enough, suggest a few ways to bring them back into the conversation. When we're communicating over screen, we lost a lot of the kind of basic communication cues that we used to have face-to-face, -face, body language and an energy that we just feel when we when we are together. And we're trying to bring a lot of that into virtual meetings. Like it, like it a lot. The the sales enablement space for technologies is huge, and I really love it because it really helps you know businesses go out and and achieve what they're doing. Particularly where you know COVID's allowed things to be way more remote globally than they ever were before, and I think technology is just going to play such a crucial um, part in um, in that. What are you doing yourselves? What are you advising the businesses that you're part of about getting funding over the next twelve to eighteen months? It had been a lot easier. It's going to be more challenging now. Um, so what's what are people should be focusing on if they're going to be wanting to uh, head to the VC rooms in the latter part of this year? I think you should act, you should operate with the assumptions that you will not be able to raise money and at the same time try to raise money. I know it's hard, uh, but that's what needs to happen at this point. So try to maximize every investment you make, create healthy unit of economics, be cl very close with your customers, know them intimately, really understand their pain point, try to figure out how you can help them more and grow from the existing relationship because generating new ones is going to be a lot harder. At the same time, Talk with investors, show a story of kind of where the market is going, that, the, that your specific category is resilient to a downturn market, or the effect is going to be very short term. In sales room, for example, I don't think the downturn market is going to affect sales. Sales is sales. 
product needs to be sold, sales people needs to meet their quota, communication is still super important in that regard. Honestly, you need to make sure what you're selling is a high priority item for the buyer. That's, that's the challenge nowadays. But if I'm looking 10 years ahead, I don't see a big risk. I think virtual selling is here to stay. AI is just the beginning in many ways. People powered by machine is just the beginning in many ways. So what's the risk? Are you telling me that Zoom is going to be, in 10 years from now, Zoom is going to be the only way sellers communicate with, with buyers? I can't imagine that. Even if the market going into a massive recession since the 40s. Yeah. But investors now do look for more efficiency, more conviction. They want to see more revenue. And you want to give yourself a chance to get there before you're running out of money. There are investors that invest right now. now I'm, I'm talking with a few of those. Uh, it's not like the market is in a complete shutdown, but there are a lot less opportunities, that's for sure. Yeah, I think VCs when they when they invest, particularly in early stage, it doesn't really matter what the uh, the climate's like outside because it's a long term thing. Yeah. And if we say on average there's a, a downturn uh, every five years or so, the 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 early stage is what's happening for for later on. So we know there will definitely be uh, money there, but it's just not going to be as easy to get your hands on. Roy, I've really enjoyed this uh, this conversation. I really appreciate. It. I know you are super busy at the moment, starting and uh, and building this uh, this organization. It's going to be great to uh, to watch you guys uh, grow and prosper over time. But I'll let you get back to it. Thank you. Thank you very much, James. Awesome.